Welcome to The Deduction, a podcast from the Tax Foundation. This is your guide to the complex world of tax and economics. I'm Scott Hodge, president of the Tax Foundation. This episode is going to be a little different than is usual for us. You know, a few months ago, I was was really lucky to talk with over a dozen very notable tax staffers from the U.S. Congress, both past and present. We enjoy those interviews so much that we're working to make them available as episodes of The Deduction, and this is the first of those episodes. In this interview, I speak with Ken Keyes, former chief of staff of the Joint Committee on Taxation, and really one of the smartest tax minds in Washington. Ken was part of what is sometimes called the golden age of tax legislation back in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, this interview was done for a separate series, so it can get a little technical, kind of inside baseball, if you will, but give it a chance, as Ken has some truly amazing stories of where he was in the room with some of the most historic American political figures in the 1980s and 1990s. I honestly think Ken was witness to history. And that is what I find so fascinating with this interview. And I think that anyone can find something interesting in Ken's experiences, a real insight to the history of tax back in the 1980s and 1990s that really set the stage for all the tax debates that we're having today. So sit back, enjoy. I think you'll find something really interesting about this interview. Hey, Ken. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? All right. Are you at home or at the office? I'm in the office where I've been coming since March 15th. And as you probably know, I'm at 101 Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Six or seven months. I've seen 10 human beings in the building. You're kidding. Oh, my goodness. So it's very socially distanced safe. Yeah. (laughs) And my commute's about 12 minutes. This has been great. Actually, <laughs> from a, from that standpoint, yeah. What you got? Your staff obviously is not coming in. I guess. Huh? I know. No, I mean, there's nobody in the building. Yeah, yeah. Or I've been I've been coming in the office for the last couple of months, and for a long time, I was it was just me. But um, we now have people trickling in who feel more comfortable and and are tired at work and home, basically. Well, I find I can get a lot more work done, and I actually need the Internal Revenue Code and files and I figured out how to change the uh, toner in the copier. I know how to work the postal meter. You know, I've pretty much figured it out. You're a one-man band now. Yeah, and a lot of Zooming. Yeah, that must get tiring. Well, thanks for your patience with this Zoom call. But this is a chance. Uh, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to do this. And and uh, we're trying to make... and. Yeah. The idea is to pay tribute to uh, to congressional staff and um, interview folks who started as congressional staff, um, and then we'll move on and uh, we'll also have interviews with uh, uh, you know folks who are currently there. Um, we're aiming to get a lot of people who are sort of barrier breakers. Will um, you know folks like Janice Mays and um, uh, Aruna and 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 many others. And uh, um, I thought we uh, the idea is to record some interviews and then we'll let's kick off and uh, we'll just get started. I guess uh, maybe start at the beginning. What made you interested in tax in the first place? What was the path to tax, so to speak? Okay, so probably like a lot of people, it's just the way your life goes. But when I was in high school, I lived in Great Falls, Virginia, and I worked for a home builder. And one of the houses he built was for Congressman Guy Vanderjack, who became 
who was on the Ways and Means Committee, as you know, for many years, who became a lifelong friend. I mean, very good friend. So that started me into it. And at Ohio State Law School, two of professors that were most influential to me were Professor Mike Rose, who I'm not making this up when I tell you, had a photographic memory and could recite most every provision of the Internal Revenue Code without the code. The other was Professor Morgan Shipman, who was one of the most brilliant professors um, that I ever came in contact with, uh, who caught business tax, et cetera. And in the small world category, his daughter was later on Claire Shipman, who followed the White House, I think, for ABC. So I'd say those three people really uh, influenced me. And as a result, after my first year of law school, I worked for Guy on the Means Committee when the 76 Tax Reform Act was going through Ways and Means. And the following summer, I worked for a law firm in Washington, and one of the partners was a former head of the ABA tax section. That ultimately led me into tax. And my first four years were at Baker and Hostetler in Cleveland as a tax associate before I came to Washington in 81 to work for Ways and Means. That's a pretty neat story. Um, were there, you had an opportunity to see some pretty iconic pieces of legislation during the 19, well, not obviously in 76, but in throughout the 1980s. Is there any moment you say, I just witnessed history. This will go down in my autobiography. So so you're right about the 80s. In fact, those of us that worked on Ways and Means and Finance still refer to it as the golden age of tax legislation. The 81 Act, of course, was a huge tax cut. 82 Act, TEFRA was a tax increase. DEFRA in 84, the Social Security Act Amendments of 83, and ultimately tax reform. But if I would say there was a moment that was a very historic point in history, it was in July of 81 when the tax bill went to the floor and Rostenkowski had the Democrat tax bill. The Republicans offered their alternative and defeated Rostenkowski on the floor, thanks to the Bow Weebles, who were the conservative Democrats. And that, in a way, changed the way Rostenkowski operated as a chairman, really for the rest of his time as chairman of Ways and Means because he never took a tax bill to the floor after that if he didn't have at least three or four Republican members of Ways and Means as co-sponsors because he realized he wasn't going to get blindsided again. Um, So I mean, I can still remember being on the floor on that vote. I think I... I think I said it was July 26 of uh, 81, I believe it was. And that was a pretty historic occasion because the majority in the House typically never gets defeated uh, on any piece of legislation that they bring to the floor. Well, especially a Rostenkowski, who was probably used to getting his own way. And was very effective. Uh, and then what about 86? Uh, that had to have been pretty momentous as well. Um, well, the, well, the 86 Act was was a, a, obviously uh, a landmark piece of tax reform legislation. Um, It was, people claimed as in the Gucci Gulch that it had a many, many deaths. Being on the inside, I don't think I ever thought it died. Um, but I, I do remember uh, the final markup in Ways and Means. And we, we came in at about five o'clock and it had been very bipartisan up to that point. And the Democrats provided the transition rules uh, that became the source of the Philadelphia Inquirer article later on. Um, and they were 100 pages long in statutory language. And I met with my guys and I said, I can't possibly tell you what's in here. And we walked into the Ways and Means room full of people. 
And Jim Baker, Secretary of the Treasury, was there, as was Dick Darman, his deputy. And they thought it was going to be a love fest. And I walked up to Joe Daly, who was a friend and still is. And I said, Joe, I have to tell you, my guys are going to ask for roll call votes on the transition rules. And Darman and Baker were standing essentially between us. And Joe Daly took a swing at me. Um, it's, it's in Gucci Gulch. Um, and from within about half an hour, Baker and Darman slinked out of the room because they realized this was going to be nasty. And it went to 4 a.m. And everybody was emotionally drained at that point. But the bill got enacted and it actually, much of it stood the test of time. Although I will point out that the top individual rate of 28%, uh, by the time we got to 93, was significantly higher than that, which just goes to show there's no such thing as permanent tax legislation. Well, you know, uh, jumping forward to your days at um, the Joint Committee, um, obviously the Joint Committee is one of the most iconic committees on Capitol Hill and with a remarkable history. And when you took the job as as chief of staff, how did that history impact? Did you think about it at all? Sort of what that meant? Well, sure, I thought about it. But I have to tell you, when we hit the ground on January 3rd of 1995. And it was the first time in 40 years that Republicans controlled both the House and Senate. And of course, Newt Gingrich had the contract with America. And we literally worked every day for three months. And I'd be in my office at 7 a.m. in the morning. I'd never go home before eight. Uh, It was not unusual for Gingrich to call meetings in his office at 11 o'clock at night. And you'd walk out and the 1130 meeting was sitting there. Um, And so, yeah, it was like drinking from a fire hose, moving at a high rate of speed. Um, We got to November of 95 and Republicans in the House and Senate had to reach an agreement on the tax bill that they were going to send to the president, which they knew he was going to veto. But we had to reach an agreement. And we literally walked into S209. I think that was the Senate Finance Committee's room in the Capitol at 9 a.m. in the morning. It was all Republicans because we were reaching a deal for them. So it was Newt, Army, Kasich, Archer, Roth, etc. And we walked out at 4 a.m., never having left the room. And unknown to me, there had been a massive ice storm. And so I went underground back with joint committee offices, talked to my revenue estimators, got in the car to drive home, massive ice storm, pulled into my driveway to try and open the garage door. The power was out. Um, I finally got in the house. I hadn't eaten in at least 14 hours. So I'm looking for food and I decided, nah, just forget it. I'm going to go to sleep because I have to be back at 8 a.m. And I lay down and when you're the head of the joint committee, you have so many numbers going through your head that it was hard to even go to sleep, even though I was exhausted. And just as I went to sleep, the electricity came back on and all the lights in the house came on. Um, So uh, that was pretty much the way all of 95 was. Uh, I mean, literally working weekends. And then we got to the government shutdown. And of course, that went on for weeks. So that first year uh, was pretty overwhelming. And then flash forward to 97 with that act. And uh, aside from just scoring the bill, what role does it did you and the committee play in being that? Because it went through many, many metaphor variations and iterations, if I remember right. Well, that's true. But actually, the bill that ended up being signed by President Clinton in August of 97 looked very similar to the one that we put together in that conference room in the Senate Finance Committee in uh, 95. Um, and But what role did the Joint Committee play? Well, they were integral to every part of it. They basically led the drafting and the development of all the technical provisions in the code, in the provision, in the bill. 
dealt with Ways and Means and Finance Committee staffs. But the beginning of getting that bill done is a very interesting story. So 96 election had happened. Uh, Republicans had retained the House and Senate. Clinton had got himself reelected. And in mid-December, Chairman Bill Archer called me and said, uh, I've got a meeting with the president on December 27th, uh, and I want you to come with me because I want to talk to him about doing a balanced budget, a tax cut, et cetera. Show up at the White House on time. Clinton's late because he's always late. Finally, they bring us into the Oval Office. And it's it's only Chairman Bill Archer, me, Clinton, and a staffer who ha- happened to be um, the son of the former governor of New York who had served one term on the Ways and Means Committee. So we're supposed to be in there for half an hour. We walk in and Mr. Archer says to Bill Clinton, you remember Ken Keyes? He was down here in the government shutdown in 95. Clinton says, oh, yeah, I know Ken. Now, most people would say there's no way he knows. But people that know Bill Clinton say he it's true. He has a phenomenal memory. People have told me stories about they talked to him about an education matter in an airport. And eight years later, he's walking through the airport and he says, hey, Scott, remember we talked about that? So Bill Archer has this perfect presentation that he's going to, wants to do a balanced budget, cut capital gains. We know we're going to have to do child credit. I went to the Social Security Commission. The whole time, Clinton is slumping lower in the chair. And I thought he's going to nod out. And do I have to go get the Secret Service guy to kind of wake him up? Clinton sits up response point by point by point. We were supposed to be there half an hour. We were there 45 minutes. Somebody comes in, yanks on his shoulder. He goes, get out of here. We're in there an hour. We're in there an hour and a half. And finally, Mr. Archer just stands up and says, well, Mr. President, I don't want to take any more of your time. We're walking out and Bill Archer says to me, as you know, one of the most conservative members of Congress and representative one of the most conservative congressional districts and says, that may be the smartest man that's been president in my lifetime. In August of 97, we passed the 97 tax cut, the 97 balanced budget. Most people don't remember this. The 97 tax cut, net cut taxes, $275 billion, which was the first net tax cut since 81. Every other tax bill from 81 to 97 was either a tax increase, as in the 82 Act, the 84 Act, the 93 Act, or was revenue neutral, as in the 86 Act. And it was done on a bipartisan basis. And I have to say, Erskine Bowles deserves a lot of the credit, but so does Newt Gingrich, Bill Archer, and the president. And as a result, as you know, we paid off half a trillion of debt before 9-11. And when we sit here today and talk about the prospect of paying off any debt, people will look at us and go, what are you smoking? But it was an example that on a bipartisan basis, if you have the right people in the room, you can actually accomplish big things. Is the uh, Why is the Joint Committee so important to the process when you think about it? I mean, what, what would the process look like if you didn't have that body? Well, so, so it's important for a whole lot of reasons. In fact, one of the interesting things I learned when I went there, which I didn't appreciate, is how many things the Joint Committee does. People, every out revenue estimating, everybody knows that's a big deal since the 74 Budget Act. Before than it wasn't, but tax treaties, uh, approving refund claims, which is in the news. But what's important about the Joint Committee is they're touching all pieces of the legislation. They're dealing with the Ways and Means Committee. They're dealing with the Finance Committee. And our role was to bring together the two sides to get a final product. And having a nonpartisan staff in the middle of that process, to me, is 
crucial. And it, I think it's performed uh, admirably over many decades. Are there times in which it sort of saves the process from itself or, uh, say, it, I guess, improves legislation or pre- prevents unintended consequences? Oh, I think that happens all the time because the advantage the Joint Committee has over Ways and Means and Finance, Ways and Means and Finance has some fine tax lawyers, but they don't have the, the breadth. And so Joint Committee has the ability to look at proposals and say, well, do you realize if we do this, what's going to happen? So, for example, if we increase capital gain taxes effective January 1 of 2021, and we announce that in November, what's going to happen? We might have a massive sell-off. I mean, the Joint Committee is there to point out the kind of behavioral responses that might occur before Congress goes ahead and acts. Capital gains is just one issue, but there are plenty of examples like that. And so their role is to try and be an impartial a mediator between all the players and to provide the most effective expert guidance that they can. And I think over the years, that's exactly what they've done. This may be an unfair question, but having worked on some really iconic pieces of legislation, are there any dogs that you can think of, ones that um, are either just silly or terrible or the ones that make you cringe today and say, oh, I wish we hadn't done that? Well, one really comes to mind. So uh, again, going back to that, getting a deal on the 95 tax bill, we're in a, a, a conference room and Roth, Senator Roth is there, Bill Archer. We had a target of reaching a tax cut of $250 billion, and Archer was insisting have no spending provisions. Roth, who rides Amtrak, just like former Vice President Joe Biden did, desperately wanted to get a billion dollars to Amtrak because as as is now, Back then, they were hemorrhaging money. And I'm sitting in Newt Gingrich's conference room, and we're at an impasse. And I then did something that's always dangerous, which is intellectual R&D in public. And I said, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we provide Amtrak an unlimited carryback of their net operating losses to get them a billion dollars. And Roth goes, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, we had to give them a net, op- net operating loss carryback to the, I think the 1940s, uh, because they'd been losing money for so long, they hadn't paid tax in forever. Um, and you'd have to say as a matter of good tax policy. It's a little hard to say that was a winner. Yeah, when you think of things like the child tax credit, which I was part of advancing back in those early days, I now regret it looking how it's tripled, quadrupled in size and how many people are knocked off the tax rolls. So I guess we all have our crosses to bear in terms of bad policy or, or consequences. Also. That's for sure. <laughs> um, well, and without naming names, uh, what is the dumbest question a member of Congress ever asked you? Uh well, I, I was testifying in front of one of the non-tax writing committees on an issue, and the member of Congress uh, asked me whether I'd gotten a revenue estimate from CBO. And I had to politely explain that CBO doesn't do revenue estimates. It's the joint committee that does. It, it's amazing how many people don't understand that. Many people don't understand the joint committee, but I'll say the least understood uh, player in tax policy to this day is the House Legislative Council's office, which back then was run by Ward Hussey. And the history of the Legislative Council's office was in the teens or 20s. Members of Congress would develop legislation. They put their written description on a train. It would go up to Princeton. They draft the legislation. They had an office of legislative drafting up there. They draft it. They'd send it back. Things didn't move real fast then. And then they finally brought that into the Congress. And Ward Hussey had been there so long that when he went to the House Legislative Council's office, 
his first job was to draft the legislation that implemented the Marshall Plan. That's how long he had been there. And he was colorblind, his clothes never matched, and he was probably the most brilliant tactician of understanding the Internal Revenue Code who ever existed. So the Joint Committee maybe sometimes isn't completely understood. In fact, based on many questions I've received from the press, it's obvious they don't. But I would have to say the House Legislative Council's office is even less understood. But, I mean, all the think about all the hours that you spent during hearings and on the floor. Um, can you remember anything that you, you you saw and what you said to yourself? I can't believe I just saw that. Oh, I can give you that. Um, it was um, we were working on uh, what became the 1997 tax bill. I'm sitting on the Senate floor. It's 11 o'clock at night, and we'd been there for many, many hours. And Senator Brown from Colorado, who, by the way, was a tax lawyer, had a master's in tax from, I think, GW, walks over to me and says, is there a provision in the code that limits deductibility of executive compensation to $1 million? I go, yeah, it's section 162M. He says, does it apply to Hollywood stars and sports stars? And I said, no. And he goes, well, if I wanted to amend, offer an amendment to do that, what would I do? So I pulled out my code, pulled out a piece of paper, and I wrote out an amendment to section 162M and handed it to him. Two minutes later, he's offering it on the Senate floor. Herb Cole, who owns the Milwaukee Bucks, is in near catatonic distress, and it passes with a voice vote. The next morning, I'm in my office, and Archer calls me and says, what did you do last night? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I'm getting calls from the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. They are on fire. I said, oh, I think I know what that may be. Um, it was rather hysterical, actually. And Hank Brown had a good sense of humor. Um, but that, that was that was a pretty unique one. Was he just trying to have fun with or play a, a joke on him? Or was that? Oh, no, no, I. I don't think so. I think he was making actually a good policy point, which is we have a cap of a million dollars on executive compensation, but it doesn't apply to other people that make lots of money. And why is that? Does that make any sense as a matter of policy? So, I mean, he had a good policy point, uh, but to scratch, literally write out the amendment, tear it off my tap of paper and hand it to him. And two minutes later, it's being adopted. Well, that was, you say the Senate can't move fast. Well, um, under some circumstances, they can move really fast. Well, what, um, what, what would you say that your, that your time on the Hill, what did it mean to your career and, and what kind of advice might you give to a younger staffer? Well, I, I can tell you advice that I've given to lots of tax lawyers who asked me about, you know, I'd like to go to work for Treasury. I said, great place. But more often than not, I will say, you know, you might want to go to work for the Joint Committee. It's a great place, smartest people in tax, I think. Um, and but but the other thing I would tell people, and unfortunately, I I guess fortunately, I get calls all the time from parents who say, you know, my son or daughter, upcoming tax lawyer, you know, would you meet meet with them and tell them why you were successful? And I always say, yeah. I, I always meet with them. And the meetings aren't very long because I say, look, you're not going to want to hear this. But the, the key to succeeding, and it's not just as a tax lawyer, it's true of many, many professions, is you work harder than everybody else. And if you work harder than everyone else, you're going to have opportunities that will come to you that you've never dreamed about um, that will make you successful in your career. And in today's environment, you know, when people come and want a job interview, the first thing they want to know is what's the vacation policy? What's, what's, what, what kind of employee benefits do I get? Um, do I have to work past six o'clock at night? And, you know, when you tell people, 
yeah, the, you know, the way to succeed is work harder than everybody else. It's frequently not a well-accepted concept, but the truth is there's a lot of truth to it. Well, one last question, and it has to be, obviously, the most fun that you had working on Capitol Hill was going on a tax foundation international tax trip, I would guess. Is there, right. You- well, I, I remember one of them in particular. So it was probably 96 or so, and we go to Sweden and we're meeting with Swedish tax officials and they're proudly telling us that they've reached an agreement, a historic agreement the night before to eliminate tax competition. And as you know, um, the reason that's particularly important in Europe before there was a common currency was if Spain wanted to get more capital, they would just produce more tax benefits with a common currency and they'd produce more tax benefits and capital would flow into Spain. So they really wanted to get rid of cross-border tax competition. And so I say to this guy in a very serious manner, well, how is it enforceable? And he looks at me and goes, oh, it's not enforceable. And I did everything I could to not burst out laughing because having worked on the Internal Revenue Code for a long time, the key is if you write a provision, how are we going to enforce it? Is the IRS going to be able to interpret it? Are they going to know how it works? But to this guy, oh, it's not enforceable. And I thought, well, that's an historic accomplishment. So that was on a tax foundation trip. Well, I'm sure you guys had some fun that uh, probably will stay in Europe and uh, uh, not for public consumption, but uh, those were pretty good trips. I, I I didn't. Uh, my first one was in 2000. Sadly, we had to end them. I think in in 2005. It was Tom DeLay's shenanigans that kind of led to the death knell of those trips. Oh, it's too bad. Well, and the same thing happened to Eagle Lodge. Uh, yeah. uh, the tax notes ultimately killed Eagle Lodge because they couldn't be there. And I understand both sides of that argument. Uh, but Eagle Lodge was a very. It was a great meeting where lots of ideas were exchanged and people were very candid and they could speak openly. And um, there, you know, along this same lines. One of the most significant developments that happened with respect to markups in Ways and Means was that up until 95, as you probably know, markups were closed to the public. And as a result, and I'll use the 86 Tax Reform Act as an example, Ways and Means was in markup for almost 26 days straight from nine in the morning to nine at night. And members, because we were in closed markup, were not afraid to ask dumb questions. And I honestly say by the time the 86 Act was coming together, most of the members of the committee actually understood a lot of what was in the bill. 95 comes and Archer becomes chairman of Ways and Means. He has the first meeting of the Ways and Means Committee to adopt the rules. One of the rules is to agree, continue to have closed markups and to not have to mark up from statutory language. The Democrats objected and Archer shrewdly agreed to both. And the reason I say shrewdly is if you're in the minority and you only get a 400 page tax bill, statutory language, 24 hours, even 48 hours before markup, your ability to actually draft amendments, which have to be statutory amendments is very limited. And as a result, when we marked up the first version of the 95 tax bill, everybody thought markup was going to go on for five days. It was over in about a day and a half. Um, So, I mean, that was a huge change in the way the Ways and Means Committee operates. As you know, the Finance Committee this day operates from conceptual language, but Ways and Means operates from statutory language in open markups. And that was a seed change from the way things have been done for decades, for better and for worse. You know, going back to the trips, um, we were fortunate enough in 2004, we went to Geneva to meet with the WTO. And because, you know, all the staff at the time is going, you know, who's this WTO and why are they making our lives miserable about Fisk ETI? 
And lo and behold, when we walked in there, it turned out that a couple of the staffers that we were meeting at the WTO were former Rostenkowski staffers. Oh, oh, it was this trade guy, um, Rufus Yerksa. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that kind of broke the ice and uh, let down some of the tensions. And, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily resolve anything. But I think the staff that were on the trip now had a greater appreciation for what WTO was all about, what the trade dispute was about. And uh, they could connect uh, with those former staffers. So that made a big difference. And you wouldn't you get today because staff can't really travel in the same way, unfortunately. Uh, well, that wraps up all our questions, Ken. I really, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us and, and uh, being able to share some of those, those memories. Uh, that's important, very important stuff. So I thank you very much. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Terrific. Well, uh, stay safe and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get to see you soon in person. All right. Thanks, Scott. Take care, but thanks again. Yep. And that wraps up this episode of The Deduction. We'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. Please let us know at taxfoundation.org slash podcast.